Thank you for coming this morning. Um, you will be very glad that you did come because I will not just be preaching this morning. I will be doing training. And um, I believe that this is very important to the heart of God. And I'm happy that you will be able to benefit uh, from what we will be doing together this morning. God bless you. Welcome. And then uh, I didn't just want to talk to you. I wanted you to have material that you can use after the training. Because it's possible just to have a lot of talk. Um, and then you have a lot of information and you are scrambling to make notes. So I decided to develop some notes. And um, they are making some copies of them. So I'm sure you are going to get a copy. This is very important to me. I think that leaders should have resources with which they do what, um, with which they do what they have to do as servants of God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you very much for the grace to be alive and to be in your presence this morning. We are so blessed and so grateful that we belong to you. And now, Lord, we want to ask that your spirit will instruct us. You will open your heart to us. And show us what is important to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, gracious Father. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me begin this morning by saying that what we'll be looking at is uh, making disciples. How leaders making disciples. That's the big title. And then under it you can write the subtitle which is how leaders can catalyze disciple-making movements to finish the task. Making disciples. How can leaders, God's servants, God's children, how can they catalyze what is being called disciple-making movements so as to finish the task that God has given to his people? So, that's what we'll be studying. And um, uh, don't worry, an outline will get to you shortly so that you can follow line by line. But the first thing under the introduction that I have is that leaders must know what God is doing or else they risk being irrelevant in divine agenda. It's important that as a leader, you know what God is saying, you know what God is doing in your generation, you know what I call the divine priorities. Because if you don't know that, you run the risk of majoring on minors. You run the risk of concentrating on something that is not important to the agenda of heaven and to the purposes of God. This is very important. So go with me to Psalm 28. Let's establish that fact right away from scripture. It is something that is very possible that... Psalm 28 and verse 5. Uh, please correct it when you get your outline. I have written 6 there. It's verse 5. Psalm 28 and verse 5. It says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of His hands, what's going to happen? He shall destroy them and not build them up. There's something that is being said in that scripture. It says, because these people do not understand the works of the Lord, and they don't understand the operation of his hands. So you see, there are two things in that verse. You have something the Bible calls the works of the Lord, 
In other words, what God is doing, and then the operation of his hands, which now refers to how God does what he does. In other words, the modus operandi, uh, modus operandi. What, is, what are the ways of God? First of all, you have what is God doing, the works of the Lord. Then the second component is the operation of his hands. It says because they don't understand that and they don't regard that, look at the consequence. It says God is going to destroy them and he will not build them up. Now, does somebody have that verse from the message translation? One of the things that has helped me, and I want to encourage you, is reading the Bible from as many translations as possible. You are going to have light. Because where one translation didn't bring clarity, you are going to find understanding by reading from a different one. Hmm? Now, so can someone read that for us from the message translation, Psalm 28 and verse 5? Our brother here, uh, help us to read. Because, because they yes. have no idea yes. how God works. So, first of all, because they have no idea how God works. Or what he is up to. Or what he is up to. So please, note that I'm coming, you will continue reading. But first of all, notice what he says. Because they have no idea how God works. And then number two, or what he is up to. So you see what is going on here is that we are being told that there is a way that God is working and we are being told that God is up to something. In other words, God is doing something. There is something that God is doing. He's at work. So you see, it says, because they have no idea how God works. So God is working, but these people don't have an idea of how God works. And then number two, they don't have an idea of what God is up to. You see, in every generation, God is up to something. And the worst thing that can happen to you, apart from going to hell, listen, listen very closely. And this has been one of my prayers from when we were on campus. The worst thing that can happen to a person, apart from going to hell, is that God is working in your generation and you are not part of what God is doing. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. Because it means you wasted your life. You just wasted your life. The question, the question then is, so what, what did you do with your life? And this is so important for leaders. The reason is because if as a leader, you don't have clarity about what God is doing and what God is up to, then the question is, where will you lead your people to? Where, where would you take them to? You will not have to take them to human agenda, divine agenda. You will have to lead them in the pursuit of maybe building your own empire or building your own kingdom because you didn't even have clarity about what God was doing in your generation. In the book of Habakkuk, he said, I walk a walk in your days. And you will not believe it, even if it was described to you. Now, our brother, keep reading that verse, start afresh and read the entire verse now. Because they have no idea how God works. Yes. Or what he is up to. So what is going to be the consequence of that? God will smash them to smithereens. God will smash them to smithereens. Smithereens means tiny, tiny, tiny pieces. You know, just imagine now that you smash that glass. Not that glass. Windscreen. Have you seen a windscreen that smashed before? 
it goes into tiny, 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 tiny pieces. Those are smithereens. It says, because they have no idea how God works, and they don't have an idea of what God is up to, it says, God is going to smash them to smithereens, and then he's going to do what? He will walk away from the ruins. He will walk away. In other words, this destruction is permanent. What's the problem? Is it because they did not have an idea what God was up to in their generation? What I'm saying to you is possible, even for a preacher on the pulpit, to be preaching. That is, you are preaching, and but you don't know that your preaching is item 70 on God's agenda. You missed the priorities. You did not major on majors. This must not happen to you as a leader, and then number two, as a child of God. So, and by connecting with what God is going, doing, you will not be a local champion. There are a lot of people that are making a lot of noise, but they are just local champions. They are not significant in the global purposes of God. You see, there is nothing local about the gospel. This is a global gospel, which of course we must preach locally. But as a child of God, you must never lose sight of God's global agenda. You must never lose sight of what your father is doing on the earth today. This is very important. Okay. So, what is God doing? There are plenty things, plenty possibilities. What is God doing right now in this generation? What is God doing? Because you hear some people preach all kinds of things. Thank God for a sober church like Chapel of His Resurrection where you hear balanced teaching of the Word of God. But you hear all kinds of things going on now in the body of Christ. What is the number one priority of God in our generation? I believe that that priority is defined in Matthew chapter 9. Please go with me to Matthew chapter 9. You are going to also find it in other ways in other passages, but I want to read this for you from Matthew chapter 9 and invite you to consider with me um, what I'm sharing with you. God is gathering his plentiful harvest. God is gathering his harvest and is mobilizing all of his people to gather his harvest. That is the most important thing to him now. You see, if you paid something with your blood, if you paid for something with your blood, you are not likely going to have any interest in any other discussion if not in what you paid for. I said, if you imagine now that you are going to build a house and you paid for cement. I understand that, first of all, you might have to pay, make the deposit, pay, they give you the slip, and then the cement is now delivered. Maybe the trailer load is now delivered uh, to you thereafter. Now, when you have paid and you have not gotten what you have paid for. You are not comfortable until you collect what you paid for. In fact, 50% of what you paid for is not acceptable. You want 100% of what you paid for. And we are talking of what you paid for with cash, with money. Now imagine that you paid with your blood. If it was your blood that you used to pay for something, you are not interested in anything that is not connected to that matter. Because this thing costs you your life. So this is your primary agenda. This is your primary purpose. You're not impressed. Anybody who is talking something else, in fact, even if they are discussing politics and they are talking about something, you're not interested. Because you've already poured out your life blood for something. In the same way, 
God has shed his blood. Listen, the blood that Jesus shed on the, on the cross of Calvary is not human blood. It's in Acts chapter 20 that you find that shocking statement that God, Paul was speaking to those elders of the church at Miletus and he said to them, take it to yourself so that you can feed the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. I read that scripture, I said, what? He said, feed the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. The blood that, if it was human blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, it cannot save anybody because it's tainted. It's contaminated. And that's why the blood of Jesus could pay for everybody because it's not regular blood. It is the life of God himself. And after he has shed his blood to purchase a harvest, he is not interested in anything else that is not connected to his harvest. So look at Matthew chapter 9 from verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then doing what? Healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Why? He said because they were weary and scattered. How? like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is what? Is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore do what? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There are some things I want you to note here, but I want you to, first of all, let's read, all of us, let's read together Matthew 9, 37 and 38. One to go. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is what? Plentiful, but the laborers are few. Say that again with me. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what's the solution now? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And immediately in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples and sent them. I don't know if you are following that. Now, when you study your Bible, everybody listen. When you want to do serious Bible study, remember that the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. Very important. There's a man called um, uh, uh, Cardinal Hugo. Along with another man, Stephen, I think Langfield was the man's name, who became an Archbishop of Canterbury later. They were the ones that divided the Bible into chapters. And another man called Robert Estienne was the one that helped to divide the Bible into verses. And the reason for this was for ease of reference. So that if we are looking for something, we can find where we are looking for but if you notice this scripture now, you see that immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ finished talking about harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, in the next verse, which is chapter 10 verse 1, he called the 12 and he sent them out. So you, you can see here that the primary thing as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned was this harvest. Was this harvest. Look very closely, he says, the harvest truly is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Now, what was it that made him to make this statement? To be able to understand that, you need to look at the previous verses. 
we are told that Jesus went about teaching, preaching, healing, huh? casting out devils, curing all manner of diseases among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, you see, the thing here is, note that Jesus went about doing, teaching, preaching, curing, healing, doing all kinds of miracles and preaching the gospel. But when he saw the multitudes, immediately you see that something dawned on Jesus when he saw the multitudes. I believe that it settled on his mind that, wow, you are going about, you are teaching, you are preaching, you are ministering, but you alone cannot handle this multitude. When he saw the multitudes that were weary and scattered and and collapsed and depressed and dejected, like the Amplified Bible puts it, when he saw the multitudes, he realized that, wow, this harvest is plentiful. I alone, going about teaching and preaching, I cannot fulfill this assignment. So what was his statement? He now began to raise the matter of laborers that are going to tackle this massive harvest. And as soon as he began to say that, he now gathered the laborers that he had. And these laborers were not perfect people. Don't forget, this is Matthew chapter 9. And you know there are 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. So this is towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry. These guys have not made plenty of the mistakes they made later. So these are not perfect people that Jesus sent out. Please remember that because that is an important principle in what we are going to be studying now. When he saw the multitudes. Now, to give you further understanding... The multitudes that Jesus saw 2,000 years ago are nowhere near the multitudes that we have today. What I'm saying, does it make sense? I mean, what was world population, what was world population back in the time of Christ? Some of my people checked, they said something like 500 million, which I even think is exaggerated. The world population, as at 1960, was 3 billion. Over a period of 40 years, from 1960 to the year 2000, world population doubled to 6 billion. In other words, it took the world population all of these thousands of years to get to 3 billion. But once it got to 3 billion, it doubled in 40 years. Current world population is about 7.7 billion people on planet Earth. It crossed the 7 billion mark in October of 2011. You will agree with me that the multitudes that there are today are far, 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 far more than anything that Jesus saw. And it was this multitude of people, lost souls, that Jesus called the harvest. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion, and then he said, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So the harvest represents the multitudes of people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are harassed, they are dejected, they are on the brink of eternal damnation. They are going to go to hell. Now, the point is that Jesus has already paid for them. He has shed his blood for them. So the question is, how, what are we going to do about this harvest? Now, you will notice that, okay, now let me give you a few, a few more um, statistics. 
You see this harvest that we are talking about, 7.7 billion people in the world today. Out of these 7.7 billion, 33%, 33% are Christian, what you will call Christian. Um, and when you hear Christian here, Christian does not mean born again. 33% are people that identify themselves as Christian. It includes Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, Pentecostals, Kerosene and paraffin, all the different, all the, including Mormons, everybody that mentions the name of Jesus is part of this 33%. In absolute numbers, it comes to about 2.3 billion people. That is, if you join everybody that mentions the name of Christ. About 2.3 billion. Now, if you take away 2.3 billion from 7.7 billion, you have 5.4 billion people that are not in any way Christian. They are not in any way Christian, even remotely. That means, let's now assume, let's make the assumption that everybody that is called Christian, eh, the 33%, Anglican, Catholic, you know, all the groups, including Cherubim and Seraphim and all the others, let's assume that they are, they are all going to heaven. Automatically, you have 5.4 billion people that if the world, if the trumpet were to sound now, they are lost forever. Now, let's look at this 33% more closely. You will agree with me that all of these 33% are not born again. All of us know that. Whether in the Anglican church or in the Pentecostal churches or in the Roman Catholic church or several other places, how many of the people that go to churches that are born again. Now, so out of these 2.3 billion, how many are actually born again? Listen to this. That category that are born again, they are known as evangelicals. That's the broad name for everybody who has had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In missiological circles, they are called evangelical Christians. Huh? That means, it doesn't mean that they are members of evangelical church of West Africa or something. No. A born-again Anglican is evangelical. The reason is because you believe that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. You have repented from your sins and received Him as your Lord. If you are now dealing with absolute numbers, there are somewhere between 900 million to 1 billion people on planet Earth today who have had a born-again experience, who have been saved. Let's take 1 billion as the figure. Now, if you take away 1 billion of people who are born again from 7.7 .7 billion, you have 6.7 billion people that Jesus Christ died for on the cross of Calvary, but that we go to hell right now in the trumpet sound. If you were God the Father, who shed your blood, who gave your son to die, so that people like that can be saved, if you were God the Father, would you be interested in anything else? Would you be impressed by anything else? If people are doing program, and that their program does not eventually boil down to bringing these people that are lost back to the Savior, helping them to get the, find the shepherd, does that, will that impress you? So you see, as I look at the body of Christ, and as I look at plenty of the things that are going on, I am asking myself, where is this thing that people are doing on the scale of divine agenda? Because ultimately, that is what is going to matter in the sight of God. I don't want to bother you with plenty of other statistics, 
Because you now have Muslims. Muslims are now about somewhere between 23-24% of this world population. Their own has been increasing. The Christian percentage has remained the same despite global population growth. But the Muslim percentage has been increasing, multiplying. Now there are more than 1.5-1.6 billion Muslims around the world. And Muslims are already celebrating and expecting the day when they will be more than Christians. And they are planning it and multiplying towards it. Then you have another 900 million people, 900 to 1 billion people who are Hindus, mostly located in India. Then you have the, what you call the atheistic, you know, uh, um, uh, agnostic community. The, the, the people who don't believe in God and who don't, who don't, or who are not sure that God exists. You also have that crowd. Then you have the enemies, those who have not heard. Another major thing that is happening is that even these people that have not heard the gospel are no longer just in villages. They are moving to the cities. The reason is because urbanization is multiplying. People are, villages are being absorbed into cities. Even the people in the villages are coming to the cities to look for some kind of employment, either as Okada riders or farmers or whatever it is. And by the year 2030, 2030 is just 11 years from now, it is projected world population will be about 8.6 billion. The, re- and the reason I'm giving you this information is that as a leader, it's not correct for you that all you see is what is in front of you. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where you have leaders that cannot see far and they cannot see what God is doing, they cannot see the big picture, the people perish. Their lives are squandered. By 2030, there will be about 8.6 billion people on planet Earth. And out of those 8.6 billion, about 5 billion will be living in cities. 5 billion will be living in cities. And here is even the more serious one. In the slums around the cities, you are going to have about 2 billion. So it means that if you add the cities and the slums around them, you will have about 7 billion people out of 8.6 billion living in cities and the slums around them. The point is that the mission fields are changing. That's the point. So you don't have to now even go particularly. Of course, God will raise up some people and send them to villages. But the point is that the villages and those who have not heard the gospel, they are coming to you here. Notice that Hausa people from northern Nigeria are coming to you in Enugu here. They are here. So if you couldn't go to Sukoto or Kano, to go and reach them. Now they are here in the backyard. Chinese people are coming to us here. That's what is going on in the world today. So when Jesus saw these multitudes, the Bible said he was moved with compassion. And what was his prescription? He said the harvest indeed is plentiful, but the laborers are what? A few. Now that brings me to the fact that God is mobilizing all of his people to participate in this harvest. You see, because the harvest is plentiful, Jesus alone could not gather it. He was doing but when he saw the multitudes. He said, ah, I need to mobilize whatever few laborers I have and send them. So he told them, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. But while you are praying, come and be going. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> in, 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 at the end of chapter 9, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And verse 
chapter 10 verse 1, when he had called his 12 disciples, he gave them power. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. There was no space. So, it's like saying, as you are praying, you too be going. So, be going and be praying that the Lord of the harvest will raise more laborers. Does this make sense? Is there anyone who doesn't have the outline? If you put up your hand, they will get one for you. Everybody has. Good. So, the, the importance of what I'm sharing with you is the fact that the harvest will not be gathered now by a few superstar preachers. Do you follow what I'm sharing with you now? God is mobilizing all of his people to take their part in collecting this harvest. There's something I mentioned last night, maybe this evening I will talk a bit more about it. The idea of full-time and part-time. You see, I have a problem with ideas and titles and names that you cannot find in scripture. Let me give you an example. When you say full-time and part-time, which verse are you quoting? That's a standard question I normally ask because as far as I'm concerned, the book is our authority. So I will say, which verse are you quoting? There's nothing like full-time, part-time in the Bible. You never read it. Take for instance now, was Brother Paul part-time or full-time? You see, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because he was exactly like uh, Venerable Professor Sam. <laughs> you understand the point? The, the man was making tents and preaching the gospel. And when you hear that Paul was making tent, it's not mosquito net. You know, people think tent is that, that thing that he was building. People lived in those tents back in those days. Number two, they held programs. If you have seen some of these churches that use tents in, in Enugu here, or those event centers that are made in, those are the kind of structures. It required technical expertise. The Bible says because Paul and uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they were of the same trade. The word is homo technos. Homo technos. Technos is technology. They were of the same technology. Paul was a skilled person. He was not, he was not just making some flimsy structures. He was a builder. And he was preaching the gospel. When, of course, the demands of preaching became too much, he left the, what's it called, the building concentrated on preaching. But notice that he didn't have to depend on people for his sustenance. He said, these hands, he told the Ephesian elders, he said, all of you are witnesses. I didn't covet any of your goods or anything from you. These hands have ministered to my needs as well as the needs of those that were with me. But today... The expectation of people in the church is that ministry is to be done by the ordained clergy, ordained reverence, and with all due respect, and I believe in leadership, do you know that everything that Jesus did for clergy, he also did for lay people? Am I correct, Venerable sir? <laughs> Whatever Jesus did for the man of God, he did for the child of God. His Bible doesn't have 67 books inside. He has 66. He doesn't have a different Holy Spirit. So what makes us think that simply because we are not clergy, we are exempted from what God is talking about? Part of the teaching too is the clergy have told people, say, well, you know, you people, you are not ministers. We are the ministers. Go and make money. Come and support us. Which verse are you quoting? The job of the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, and the teachers, let's quickly read it in Ephesians chapter 4. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Keep your finger in Matthew, we will come back there. But 
Ephesians chapter 4, let's see the job of the people we call, you know, uh, full time. Their job is not to do the work all by themselves. Their job is to equip every believer. Look at that in um, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave some. What did he give some? Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and then some what? Some pastors and teachers. So what was his purpose? What, why did he do that? To equip the saints for what? Did you see what the Bible is talking about there? To equip the saints, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some, you know, uh, uh, pastors and teachers. He gave some. The fact that he gave these people these ones, does it mean he didn't give other people other things? The Bible says, to every one of us, grace has been given according to the gift of God. So you find here in this scripture, now he says, so why did he give all these apostles, prophets, teachers, he said, look at the answer in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what a pastor, a correct pastor is supposed to do, is to equip you for the work of the ministry. That is the correct job of a proper pastor or a proper preacher. It's not to spoon feed you, it's to equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry where you are located. You see, the people that we are trying to reach are not located inside churches. I've, I just showed you the, from the statistics. How many of these billions you are hearing about go near church? But they come to hospital. Ah, they come to the university, they come to schools. Ah, they come to courts. They go to secondary schools. They go to the market. So who better to reach them than Jesus' people who are already located in each of these places? What I'm saying is it making sense to you. So it's important to understand that God is mobilizing all of his people. There is something I wrote there. You are going to see it in uh, number 3, B3, on page 1 of your, of your outline. If you look at B3, uh, can I have one of those, one of those, please? This one here is tiny. Thank you. Thank you. So if you look at B3, you see the pattern of Nehemiah when they built the wall. You remember that that wall that Nehemiah built was built in how many days? Who remembers? Who remembers? No, you should know. You should, as a leader, you must spend time to study the book of Nehemiah. It's one of the most important books about leadership in the entire Bible. 52 days. That was how quickly the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt. That is a miracle. I was in Israel in January. And when you see the wall of Jerusalem, to be, for that wall to have been rebuilt in 52 days, it's a miracle. The temple, which was one structure, took them more than 20 years to build. Of course, with all the opposition they faced. But Nehemiah deployed a divine strategy that added speed to the agenda. Such that in 52 days, the wall was in place, complete with the gates. It was dedicated after 52 days. What did Nehemiah do? The strategy was found in chapter 3 in, of the book of Nehemiah. Everybody was involved in rebuilding that wall 
I don't have time to go line by line there, but just note that Nehemiah chapter 3. When you read it, the person that started the Bible said the high priest, he repaired this side. Then what you are going to read throughout the entire book is, and next to him, and next to him, and next to him, so so and so person repaired. Next to him, so so and so person repaired. Next to him, somebody repaired in front of his house. Next to him, somebody repaired 1,000 cubits. Next to him, somebody repaired the gate. Next to him, next to him. You will now understand that the wall was built simultaneously, not sequentially. This, I'm making statements that are very important for the end time harvest. What was, what was the difference between simultaneous and sequential? Imagine that you have a wall around this church here. Sequential means that all of us are walking from one point to the next point, and we are going from one point to the next point, and we are going from one point to the next point, and then we continue like that until we finish it. Simultaneous means that people we are walking on different parts of the wall at the same time. That's why you remember when they were mocking Nehemiah, you remember those people that we are laughing at them. He said, Look at these people, Jews, what are they doing? The wall that they are building, if even a fox climbs on it, what's going to happen now? It will collapse. It was because it was being built in bits and pieces. And you remember that's why Nehemiah told the people, he said, Look, all of us we are scattered upon the wall. When you hear the trumpet, then come to me. Do you remember something like that from the book of Nehemiah? When I sound the trumpet from wherever you are, locate me. The reason was because they were walking simultaneously. Each person took a portion of the wall and the person was facing it. When you read that chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah, you will be surprised by the people that walked on the wall. Everybody was involved. High priest, priests, um, uh, leaders were involved. Do you know that even goldsmiths, goldsmith, excuse me please, waiting concerned goldsmith with wall. What's the job of goldsmith? Is he, a, is he an engineer? A goldsmith is, is doing his gold. But you know, if the wall is not in place, the gold of the goldsmith is not safe. I was shocked. Even perfumers, people that produce perfume. <laughs> Excuse me, please. Somebody who is producing scent, perfume. What does the person know about building wall? But what is the good of your perfume? Your perfume will soon be placed on corpses if the wall is not in place. Because that wall was the security of the place. That wall was the protection of everybody. It was a priority. So this was not something that was going to be left to wall specialists. It was a job that required that all hands must be on deck. In fact, I was so blessed. Some people, Bible simply said, they repaired in front of their house. And do you know, if every believer will collect the harvest that is in front of them today, this, this, this global harvest will be finished. But many believers, even the harvest that is in front of them, either at the hospital or in the university, they are still waiting for the specialist, the harvest specialist, to come from church. Because you have been told that you are not a full-time preacher. What do full-time preachers look like? Do they have two heads? As a doctor in, the, in my practice, I knew that I am a preacher who happened to be a doctor. I knew. 
So when my page, and by the way, we were taught in NCCMDS, the, you know, Christian Medical and Dental Students, eh, which is now CMDA, we were taught that for you to treat somebody's body and you didn't attend to the person's soul, you just wasted your life because after the person has recovered, he has more power to go and commit more sin. And until you treated the spirit, the soul, and the only doctor that can treat that is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, as, we, as I sit in the hospital, I mean, I've led people to Christ right there in the hospital. We prayed for the sick. Though some of the people that come looking for abortion, we were able to save the children. What if I sat there and I said, well, me, I'm not a full-time preacher. And I'm waiting for the pastor to come from church. So, what I'm going to teach this morning is not going to help as long as you keep excusing yourself from the highest commitments of the global harvest. The gospel is more important than building a wall around the town. It's a, if the wall was not in place and people died, they died as far as this world was concerned. But if the gospel is not in place, people are lost forever. And as leaders, it is our job to do what? To connect with this thing that God is doing. Hallelujah. That will bring salvation to multitudes. Now there's something I want to say in Matthew chapter 9 and then I'm going to run very quickly. After this now. Go back to that Matthew chapter 9. Do you notice what Jesus said? The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are what? The laborers are few. Please, follow this now. So the challenge of the harvest is not a matter of the harvest. The problem of the harvest is not the harvest. What's the problem with the harvest? Laborers. Now notice he didn't say the reverends are few. Or the, the bishops are few. Or the pastors are few. He didn't say that. Because Jesus is not looking for people that have more theological degrees. He's not looking for people that have more. Of course, theological training is excellent. For those that are able to, able to obtain them. That is helpful. But Jesus is looking for laborers. Laborers. And you know, when you, in, the, in my mind, the picture of laborer is a construction site. Just imagine that you have a construction site. Do you see who are the people you call laborers there? Eh? You can see the man is carrying cement, he's carrying a wheelbarrow, he's pushing something, he's carrying plank. Those are laborers. They are handsome people to get the work done. That's what Jesus is looking for. And he has called all of us already. Now note verse 38. He said, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to do what? To send out. Send out laborers. You see the phrase they are sent out is very important. That phrase is very powerful. The, 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 the send out doesn't capture, capture the force of that scripture. If you read it in the Amplified Translation, he said that he may force out and thrust out you know when you, when you force out something, you trust it, you push it out. The reason is because the word for send out is ek balo. Ek balo. Ek is out. Balo is from where you get ballistic. You are familiar with ballistic missiles. You have heard about ballistic missiles. That's the word that is being used there. So Jesus is asking for ballistic laborers. Laborers that are ejected with the force of a ballistic missile. You see, that's why regular preachers are not, are not sufficient for this harvest. If they don't have that ballistic component. 
What you see? What happens? You know what happens? What makes a bull a, a, a bullet deadly? It's not the size of the bullet. It's the force of ejection. A bullet is tiny. In fact, a bullet is usually smaller than the, this this tip of my finger. But the force with which it is coming. And what is it that gives it that force is there is an explosion inside the chamber. So when that's what you, that's the purpose of gunpowder. What the gunpowder does is to cause an explosion in a closed chamber. And when that chamber is closed and the explosion takes place, there is only one outlet. That's the muzzle of the gun from where the bullet comes out. So the explosion forces out the bullet through that hole. And the impact is terrible because of the force of ejection. That's the kind of laborers that Jesus said we should pray for. Laborers that are burning, laborers that have a passion, laborers that are driven with a force, they are pushed out with a passion, with a body inside their spirit into the harvest. Not the regular people who are treating ministry as a, as a profession and they are waiting for the next promotion and they are, and they are planning union to get what they want. Burning men and women who are ejected, forced out into the harvest to make eternal impact in the purposes of God. Jesus, he pray for such laborers. And then you yourself come. I'm sending you now. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. So if you look at number C, this harvest is gathered as we make disciples of all nations who also make disciples. So go with me now to Matthew chapter 28 and we look at that. That's the commission, that's the mandate that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to all of us. How leaders can catalyze disciple making movements to finish the task? Making disciples. We are looking at this introduction which enables us to face the matter of the harvest and then see that laborers are needed and that every believer must be mobilized for that end time harvest. Now, Matthew 28 from verse 18 to 20. Can someone help me to read? Then, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yes. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and do what? Make disciples. Notice he said make church members or make converts. What did he say? Make disciples of all nations. Yes. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end. Of the age. Amen. Thank you very much, man. So you see, in this passage of scripture, first of all, we see Jesus say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is very important. So we are being commissioned by the person that has all authority. Very important. All authority. Then look what he now told us to do. He said, Go. He didn't say, Stay. He didn't say, tell the nations to come to you. Invite the people. He didn't say that. What did he say? Go. The first word in this instruction that the Lord gave is go. 
Jesus himself went about. Do you remember we saw that? He, he didn't stay in one place and say, hey, if you want eternal life, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to come. So the responsibility is on these laborers that God is raising to go. To go. It's our job to go. It's our job to reach out. It's our job to take a step. Now, it doesn't mean you are going to first of all leave and go to Indonesia or go to um, uh, Papua New Guinea or go somewhere else. It means you need to go to your neighborhood. You need to go. And you need to take the first step in, in reaching the people who have not heard the gospel. And notice that make disciples. So we are going to come now to define what do you mean by disciple. Make disciples of all the nations. The word nations there is not countries. It's ethne. Ethne. And that has to do with ethnic, you understand, people groups. Not countries per se. Eh? Make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey. So the emphasis of this discipleship will be that you will teach them to obey what I have commanded you. They will not just be memorizing. They will not just be hearing. They will be obeying. They will be doing all that I have commanded you, including this command here. Are you following the point? Meaning that as soon as they themselves become disciples, then this command of Matthew 28 also becomes applicable to them. Does that make sense? It means that they themselves will now also have to go and make other disciples and teach those disciples to obey all that Jesus taught. And then those disciples will also have to go. And That's why you hear Brother Paul say to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, he said, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. What did he say? He said, commit it, transfer it to other people, uh, faithful men, who will also be able to do what? To teach others. And if they are faithful men, will it stop with them? No, they too will be able to teach. That's how the gospel got to you and I. By this compounded transmission, faithful transmission, focus on obedience of the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ taught us. Hallelujah. So to finish the task, we must seek to make disciples that multiply disciples, that make more disciples. So not church members. See, Jesus didn't say, go and invite people to church. Now, inviting people to church might help eventually if they come to church and then somebody begins to take interest to disciple them. But he said, make disciples. And one important point is that you begin to make this disciple from the point where you meet the person. Do you know that what is happening now is that even people who are not born again are getting enrolled in disciple-making movements? Do you know why? Because the command to make disciple begins from wherever you meet the person. If you meet the person as an unserious church member, you start from there. If you meet the person as an unbeliever who is willing to read the Bible, you start from there. But of course... He is not going to jump any process. He will still come to the point of repentance, come to the point of receiving Christ, and then continue to grow in Christ, and come to the point of being able to reproduce other disciples. Am, am I making sense here? But Jesus has given us an express command. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Which brings us to number two now, disciples 
and discipleship. So let's do some definitions. We will take some questions and do some practical aspects at the end of this. But I just want to quickly get through these things uh, as we make progress. So, definitions. You see, the term disciple was not coined by Jesus. It's not Jesus that invented discipleship in the sense of being the person who started it. The word disciple was coined by a man called Herodotus in 400 BC. 400 years before Christ. So, discipleship was an established practice in the time of Christ. It was not a new new system. In fact, we, 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 we understand that there were at least 1,000 other rabbis that had disciple, disciples when Jesus was around. So imagine that there were many rabbinical schools and each person has his own disciples. You remember the, the, the Pharisees spoke about the disciples of John. Do you remember something like that? They said, why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, why do they fast but your own disciples do not fast? So telling you that Jesus is not the only person that had disciples. This is very important. Discipleship was entrenched. It was an established protocol for making people to be like their master. So the disciple was a born servant and the rabbi was the master. The master had mastery over the disciple once the relationship was established. Once somebody comes under another person in discipleship, the master had absolute authority. And you know there are modern day examples. Let me give you a simple one. Igbo people and motopaths. Eh? Do you know that not just in Nigeria, across West Africa, Igbos control the motopath trade. I'm not joking. In Sierra Leone, we do some ministry in Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone, there is a street. Sunny Abacha was very good to the people of Sierra Leone because sending Ekomog saved that country from destruction. Now, so they honored him. There is a major street in the heart of Freetown that is called Sunny Abacha Street. On Sunny Abacha Street, you can be speaking Igbo. People will be answering you from both sides. Because most of the shops on Sunny Abacha, there are some other major streets like that in the heart of Freetown. Downtown Freetown. Igbos are the place. Of course, in Sierra Leone, you also have the Lebanese selling motorparts. But the point I'm making is that how did the Igbos get entrenched in motorparts? It was discipleship. It's discipleship. So a master takes a boy as his boy. And that boy doesn't know anything. When the master takes him. We are all familiar with what I'm talking about. And then the master begins to train him. He stays in the shop. The master says, uh, go and bring a, a, a plug. The boy will go and bring wheel spanner. He says, I'm going to break your head. Is, is this what plug looks like? He will curse him. So look at you. Come on. Come see the plug there. Bring it. Then the boy will bring the plug. And as he's bringing plug, something says, this is plug, if you don't want them to break your head next time, you watch plug now. <laughs> so he's, he has learned plug. Do you know there are thousands of parts in a motorcar? Over the next several years, as this boy is with the master, he's growing physically, but he's also growing in understanding. It comes to a point where the master can leave the shop for him and even go out. That's why you have a lot of people who are unfaithful. As they are trading, they are keeping some for themselves, you know, doing all kinds of things, cheating their master. Very terrible kind of behavior. 
But do you know, after doing this for about five or six years, what happens to that boy? He knows everything the master does. He knows the cars. He knows the different brands. He knows, you know, he's putting the names, carburetor. But if you tell him to write carburetor, <laughs> he doesn't know how to write carburetor, but he knows carburetor. Do you understand the point? Not only does he know carburetor, he knows the different, different types, different models, different years of carburetor. How did he learn all that? Now note, so the master settles him, gives him some money, he establishes. Do you notice that that man is able to do the same thing to another boy? Am I correct? So he, he, he became a disciple, but now he's making disciples in the same department of motor parts. That is the plan of Jesus for every believer. That's the plan for every believer. So in the New Testament, you, so a disciple is a pupil, an apprentice. A disciple is a learner who is intent on doing what he is learning. You see, in school, you are not really a disciple of your lecturers. Because the man can talk and you can propound your own theory. You can do your own research and find something different. And say, excuse me, sir, uh, but uh, so so and so school of thought. And that school of thought said that. So you are writing to pass exams. That's not the way discipleship is. Discipleship is that you are learning with an emphasis to obey. So in the New Testament, you were either a disciple or you were not a Christian at all. Some people have the idea that, well, you know, if you don't want to be a disciple, you can just continue to be a regular Christian, a member of the church, you will still make heaven. That is a big lie. Everybody that followed Jesus in the New Testament was a disciple. In fact, remember it was in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, that the disciples were first of all called what? Christians. So it was disciples that were called Christians. It's not the other way around. And why did they call them Christian? Because they saw that their lives resembled the life of Christ. And they said, look at them, they are Christian. They look like that, they are Savior. They are behaving like Him. Praise the Lord. Okay. Now, there we have five characteristics of disciples. Now, this thing that we are going to read now, or we are going to discuss, was common to every disciple in these different rabbinical schools. You remember, we have established that Jesus was not the only person that had disciples. Do you remember that? So, in all the different schools, all the different people that had disciples, these five points were standard in all of them. So what were these five characteristics? Number one was obedience without question or hesitation. Every disciple obeyed his master without question and without hesitation. Whatever your master said was final. That's why if you notice the Pharisees, whatever Jesus told them, who did they go back to quoting, please? Moses, thank you, Moses. They said what Moses said. Jesus said, I said to you, they said, but Moses said, Moses commanded us to stone this woman. What do you say? How dare you say something different from what Moses said? You see, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, Moses and what Moses said was final. And they will do what Moses said, no matter what you said. That is a disciple. A disciple will do what his master says, no matter what you think, no matter how you feel, and no matter the cost. 
obedience. And as we are discussing this thing, they are applying it to disciples of Jesus Christ. Because they will ask, I mean, if all disciples of Pharisees and disciples of lesser people will obey them, should it be disciples of Christ that should do less? This was common among disciples. Obedience without question or hesitation. Number two, memorizing all the teachings of the rabbi word for word without being allowed to write it down. In fact, it was against the law of the rabbinical schools for disciples to write down the teachings of their rabbi. So if, you, if your rabbi was teaching, you memorized what your rabbi taught. The reason was because if you wrote, by the way, only 15% back in those days, only 15% of the entire population were literate. You forget that people didn't know how to write. Now, if you go back to our rural areas and rural villages, how did they transmit information? Was it by writing? It was by storying, by memorizing. And they were very accurate. They will tell you what happened. They know the history. They repeat it. They couldn't write. They couldn't read. So imagine 2,000 years ago, how many of them could write? Now, even if you could write and you wrote down what your master said, by the time anything happens to what you wrote, then it means you've lost the teachings of your master. Imagine that as they were going on the Sea of Galilee, the boat just broke, and then your book where you wrote your master's teachings. You know you didn't memorize it. Your book entered, and now your master has died. So you see, even after those rabbis died, their disciples could recite word for word what their masters taught. So you now understand when the Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, how richly. You now understand what the Bible means. They gave themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship and the breaking of bread. So you see, you, you, you have to internalize the teachings of your master. You have to, word for word, you memorize them. Now the question is, how many people that are inside church memorize, memorize the word of Christ? How many people inside church? If you ask somebody to quote five verses of the Bible, they say, excuse me, sir, I don't have the gift of quoting. I don't read of a gift of quoting in the Bible. You remember what you want to remember. The brother who doesn't have the gift of quoting knows the names of all the players in the English Premiership. And he can quote the names of all the people in, uh, in Real Madrid and Barcelona. But when it comes to the teachings of his master, Jesus Christ, he says he doesn't have the gift of quoting. Number three characteristics of those disciples was understanding and accepting your rabbi's Old Testament interpretation. In other words, no matter your rabbi's position on Old... You see, because there were different schools that understood different aspects of the Old Testament differently. Are you following that? All of them accepted the law and the teachings of Moses in principle. But in practical application, there were different interpretations and different applications. Now, if you were a disciple, you followed the one that your rabbi established. You understand that? And you will see it even in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say? He said, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. But I say to you, uh, do, do you understand that now? That's how those rabbis also spoke. Some of them will say, you heard that this person said that Moses said that. 
But I am telling you that what Moses meant was blah, blah, blah. Now, the question is, whose disciple are you? Are you the disciple of this man or the disciple of the other person? You would accept the teachings of your own master without question. And number four, imitating the actions of your rabbi. Every disciple would copy or imitate the actions of his own rabbi. And so that implied that your rabbi could empower you uh, to do all that he himself can do. In fact, the goal of the discipleship was to make you like your master. Do you understand that now? So your rabbi will enable you to do what he can do. Let me give you an example. Remember, we mentioned it yesterday. The man that brought his son who was demon-possessed to the disciples. Do you remember that? Why would he take his son to the disciples of Jesus? It's because everybody expected that if your master casts out devils, you too should be able to cast out devils. So even though the man didn't see Jesus, he didn't say, where is Jesus? He said, Jesus is not around. He said, okay, bye-bye. Please, when he comes back, let me know so I can bring him. That's not what the man did. He brought, he brought his son. And then all the other disciples tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and they couldn't cast the demon out. By the time Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, what is what's going on? Why the argument? And the man said, I brought my son to your disciples. <laughs> I want you to see the, the indictment. See, I brought my boy to your people, your boys. Your boys, and they have been with you. They say you cast out devil. I brought my son to your boys. <laughs> see, the man came with faith. Ah, may people's faith not turn to unbelief because of our inabilities. I brought my boy to your disciples and, and they couldn't cast the devil out. You just say, oh, faithless generation. Eh? Perverse. How long will I be with you? Bring your son here to me. And of course, Jesus cast out the demon. So the expectation was that you will be like your master. You'll be able to do what your master can do. And notice that that's exactly what Jesus empowers believers. Notice that Peter, James, and John did the things that Jesus could do. And that is the goal of every disciple. And finally, number five, characteristic, becoming a disciple maker in the school of your rabbi. It was the duty of disciples to do what? To gather more disciples to their rabbi or to their master. Everybody knew that once I have become this rabbi's, you know, disciple, it's now my job to bring other people uh, to become disciples under my rabbi. And you will see it. We don't have time to study it in John chapter 1. Huh? When you read John chapter 1, you had these two disciples of John that were following John the Baptist. You remember? But when they heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. They followed John. The name of one person was Andrew. We are not told the name of the other person. No, we are not told. We are not told the person's name in John chapter 1. Then the next thing, what did Andrew do? He found his own brother. What's his brother's name? Simon Peter. And then he said, we have found the Messiah. And the Bible says he brought him to Jesus. Eh? Now the next day, Jesus was going and Jesus found Philip. So Philip was the only person that Jesus found. And then what does the Bible say Philip did? Philip found who? Philip found Nathaniel and brought him to Jesus. So notice what is going on. Once these people came under the lordship and discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were now the ones that we are bringing disciples. Are you following that? To their master. 
You see these five characteristics that I've just explained to you, they were standard in all of these rabbinical schools. So can somebody claim to be a disciple of Christ and he's not, he's not, doesn't have this characteristic of a disciple? What was the goal of discipleship? It was to make the disciple to become like his master. We find that in Matthew chapter 10. Um, look at Matthew 10 verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Verse 25. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, and a servant to be like his master. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. It's enough. That's the peak. A disciple becomes like his master and like his teacher. So the, the goal of discipleship is to reproduce others like the master. Eh? So the disciple is now able to reproduce other disciples if he himself was a true disciple. And discipleship is God's way of making us like Christ. Romans chapter 8, you might want to add that to your text. Romans chapter 8, verse, that will be verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's, that's the plan. All those that God foreknew, he called them. Okay, moreover, whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And that glory is the glory of that firstborn son. Are you following that? It's the glory of that firstborn son. So by being glorified, they now become like the firstborn. So that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Discipleship is God's way of raising instruments for his work. That is on page 2 now. It was through discipleship that people were made in character and focus. I said first of all in character, in their lifestyle, and then their focus and the skills that they acquired through discipleship to become instruments that God could use for his um, purpose. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. Have you understood up to this point? Is there any question? Do we have any question or something you didn't understand you would like clarified? We are still going to take our question and answers at the end, but I wanted to check that we are all on the same page. Okay, so let's make some progress. The next thing we now see is that discipleship had terms, had cost. Anybody who was going to be a disciple in any of those rabbinical schools, you have to respect the terms of the rabbi of the master and the lord jesus christ himself laid out the terms of discipleship for anybody who wanted to come after him um, let's first of all go to luke chapter 9 luke chapter 9 um, and we are going to read from verse 23 first of all and then we'll go to luke chapter 14 Luke 9.23, it says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him do what? Let him deny himself, 
take up his cross daily and then do what? Follow me. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 14. And I want you to note this passage because I would like to hear from us as we point out what were the terms, what were the conditions or the cost of discipleship as we find in these passages. Luke chapter 14 from verse 25. From verse 25. Okay? Now, great multitudes went with him. So do you notice there is a crowd following Jesus, right? Huh? And he turned and he said to them, so, you see, when there is a crowd following you, I'm sure you know you have to be careful what you say to your crowd if you don't want to lose your crowd. Eh? So, great multitudes are following Jesus. Then suddenly he turned and he said to them. So, look at what Jesus said to these great multitudes that are following him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he continues to say, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first of all and do what? Count the cost. Whether he has enough to finish it. Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him. Say, this man began to build though, and was not able to finish or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else, while the order is still a great way off, what does he do? He sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has he cannot be my disciple. This is what Jesus said to the crowd. What are the preachers today saying to the crowds? Does this sound like what Jesus said? But Jesus will not deceive anybody. Say, if you are going to come after me, you have to understand with clarity what is involved here. If you are going to be my disciple. So can we point out, I want to hear from uh, some of us, what, what are the terms of this discipleship as pointed out by our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. If you speak, I can repeat. Uh, yes or cl- amplify. Total surrender. Thank you very much. Yes. Self-denial. Self-denial. You deny yourself. Yes. Take up your cross. Thank you, my brother. Take up your cross. So what was the cross? What was the cross? What do you understand by take up your cross? Yes. Yes, sir. The cross, our brother here says, is an instrument of death. Would you like to explain, sir? Yes. When you take up your cross, you are ready to die for the sake of the gospel. Thank you. 
when you take up your cross, you are ready to die for the sake of the gospel. Yes, some more. What? So Jesus said, take up your cross. Assuming you saw somebody carrying cross, don't forget that Jesus himself who said, take up your cross, was on his way to taking up his own cross. So if you saw somebody carrying cross, and the person said, take up your cross and follow me, what is the question you are supposed to ask the person? He should say, where are we going? <laughs> he said, just be coming. And do as I do. And then you people get to a hill called Calvary. And then what happens? You see him being placed on his own cross and hammered to it. And you said, are you joking or you are serious? Is this why you say I should carry cross and come after you? How, like our brother said, the cross was an instrument of execution. I think it was invented by the Romans. Crucifixion was not in existence until the Romans came. And they used it to torture criminals or anybody who opposed the Roman Empire. But in these days, what is the instrument of execution? How are condemned people executed now? Firing squad or by hanging. So maybe we could read it, Jesus say, take up your firing squad and follow me. So can you imagine that you are following Jesus and you, are, you, are, you have firing squad with that soldier pointing that gun at you? You know, once the trigger is pulled, you are gone. I, I'm sure you understand that. It's, it's, you know that what you have to take up a continual understanding of death. You have to carry an identification of death. You have to carry your instrument of death. And you see, if you died, your ambitions died. You see, yesterday in the teaching, I was talking about apprehended. You remember that? When Jesus apprehended a life, your ambitions and your plans and your programs died. It ended. All the letters that Brother Paul was carrying in his pocket when he um, uh, was on his way to Damascus, what happened with those letters? They died. They died. Take up your cross means you have died now. And that's why you hear the Bible say repeatedly concerning every believer. He say you are dead. Your life is now hidden with Christ. We are hidden with Christ in God. So it means that as a disciple, you can't threaten me with, eh, you must obey what you are saying now. Or else we will kill you. If what you are saying is contrary to what my master said, let's die. Do you notice that it is Muslims that are practicing this kind of discipleship? Can you get a Muslim man to change his mind with you over something that Muhammad said? But Christians, you can get them to argue over something that Jesus said. People that go to church. You can get them, they have an opinion where Jesus has a command. Can you imagine that you're a disciple, you have an opinion where your master has given a command. Are you still his disciple? So you see, all of these terms, let's read it in the Amplified Translation, which I put in your notes there. Um, look at Luke, verse 25, 14-25. Now, which crowds were going along with Jesus? And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. Now, the Amplified Bible now explains that hate. Look at it there, it says, in the sense of indifference to or relative disregard for them in comparison with his attitude toward God 
I don't know if that makes sense to you. You know what? You love me so much. I am so important to you that you have a sense of indifference to your father, your mother, your wife, your sister, your brothers, and even your own life. Relative to your commitment to me. The love you have for me, your commitment to me is so absolute that nothing competes and nothing compares. It doesn't mean you are going to hate your wife in the sense of hating your wife, you know, the way everyday usage of hatred. Hate in the Hebrew culture was different. Remember, God said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, but notice that even that Esau that was hated in quotes, God allowed him to collect the remnant of the blessing from, uh, from his father Isaac. And do you know that God gave Esau an inheritance, land, that he told the children of Israel that I will not give you their land. I have given Mount Seir to the descendants of Esau for a possession, and I will not give it to you. God told them. So it's not as if God wanted Esau dead and go to hell. But the love that God had for Jacob was so much that relative to Esau, he looked like hatred. Remember that Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah. You see, in the Hebrew, the word hated there doesn't mean that Leah should go to hell and die. And if there is a way I can kill her without getting caught, I will kill her. That's not the meaning of the hatred there. Because don't forget that Jacob had children, principal children, Levi, Judah, Reuben, principal children. It was Leah, Leah that he had them. So the love he had for Rachel was so much, much more than the love that he had for Leah. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Because the Bible says, love your wives. But what happens when love for wife or love for children starts colliding with your commitment to the master? Aha! The matter is clear now. So, and likewise, his wife, his children, brothers and sisters, yeah, even his own life, if you don't hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, look at verse 33. See the way the Amplified Version puts verse 33. So then, any of you who does not forsake, can we all read that together? Want to go? So then, any of you who does not forsake, renounce, surrender claim to, give up, say goodbye to all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Have you done this? He said, likewise, any of you who is talking to the multitudes, he said, any of you who does not forsake, renounce, surrender claim to, give up, say goodbye to all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Do you know that in church, people are still quarreling with giving 10% of their money to God? Every time they teach tithes, you see people that are chewing their teeth, 10% of my whole salary, give it to, give it to church. You hold 10%. But can I inform you that Jesus didn't ask for 10%? But even the 10%, do you know that after Joseph purchased Egyptians for Pharaoh, how much were Egyptians giving to Pharaoh? Who remembers? It was one-fifth. 20%. Pharaoh, Joseph said to the Egyptians, said, look, now I have, remember that Joseph bought them for Pharaoh. First of all, they brought their money to buy food. Their money finished. Then next time, they brought their cattle, their livestock. Their livestock finished. Next time, they brought their land. 
the land finished. Famine was still there. Then they brought themselves. And they say, buy us. Why should we die? Give us food. So Joseph bought them. That thing is a serious instruction. The person that has food may eventually be able to buy people. Believers should attend to agriculture. I'm talking to some people. Somebody will hear what I'm saying here. In the Nigeria that is coming, don't mind all this haze. You see, what is going on currently in our country, there is a haze, a cloud of confusion. If you can see through the cloud, there is greatness ahead of this nation. Huh? There is greatness ahead of this nation. If you can see through the cloud. And down across on that other side are people that are productive. Not people that are carrying papers around. There are people that are producing something. People that have wealth. Not, not just talk. And one of it is agriculture. Now, that is to whom it may concern. That's not my focus now. When we teach kingdom finances, we get into such matters. But notice, after Joseph bought them, Joseph now said, okay, oh yeah, from now, I'm going to give you seed to plant. But when you get your harvest, you will take 20% and go and give to Pharaoh. Now, the remaining 80% still belongs to Pharaoh, but you will be managing it for Pharaoh. Some of it you will use to eat. Some of it you are going to keep so that you can have seed that you are going to plant next time. Amen? Do you, no, no, Joseph is asking them. Amen? Do you agree? If you don't agree now, let me know what to do with all of you. They say, we agree, sir. We agree, sir. Joseph said, okay, good. You can all go now. So, they gave 20% straight away to Pharaoh, but the remaining 80% still belong to Pharaoh, just like they themselves also belong to Pharaoh. Now, Christians that Jesus Christ bought on the cross of Calvary cannot give him 10% of their money. And they are his disciples. And notice that Jesus didn't ask for 10%. He said, whoever he be of you, who does not forsake 10% of all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Is that what Jesus said? Okay, now, then let's stop. Where are you when you, are, you compare your life with this verse? Because this is scripture that cannot be broken. What are you going to do about this verse of the Bible? Because it's in the book. But Ferdinand, are you saying I should gather all my money and bring to church? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily, first of all. But the first thing I recommend to believers, it's okay to give 10% to support the work of the church and the place where you are located. But realize that the remaining 90% is not your money. Don't forget that you died. So your ambitions died. Don't forget that you have been bought with a price. If you have been bought with a price, was your pocket part of what the master bought? So it's no longer your money. So what you are now supposed to do is what Brother Paul did, we saw yesterday. He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? That is the question that marks a disciple. The money is in the bank account, but it's not your money to start planning how to spend. You are saying, Lord, what would you have me to do with your money? You see, this thing I'm teaching sounds strange. But that is the way of the disciple. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. And this whole thing is focused on what? On obedience. We don't have time, but when you have time, there's an exercise you can do. Look at number 2E, up on page 2. I recommend you do that exercise and draw a table, right? If you draw a table... On one side, you write obedient or obedience. On the other side of the table, you write 
disobedient. And then you can now extract from these scriptures that we have provided there uh, the marks of the obedient and then the marks of the disobedient. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 7, 24-28, Jesus was talking of wise builder. You remember? So, anybody who hears these words of mine and does them, I will compare him to what? To a wise builder. So, on the side of obedience, you write wise. Who dug a foundation, and so you write foundation, and laid his foundation on the rock. So, you write rock on the side of obedience. And then the rain fell, the flood rose, the wind blew, and beat against that house, but it did not fall. But anybody who does not do my word is like a foolish. So on the side of disobedient, disobedient you write foolish. Eh? Who built on sand? So instead of rock, you write sand. So do that exercise with that passage, those passages that we have there, and you'll be shocked what you will find. You will find that refusing to do what Jesus said is building your life on sand. Is the height of foolishness. In the book of James, there he says, don't just be hearers of the word only. Deceiving yourself. So, the person who is just hearing the word but is not doing it, is deceiving his own self. But the doer is the one that is going to be blessed. So, the entire focus is teaching them to obey. We ourselves obeying and then teaching other people to obey what the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Is there any question or comment? I, we want us now to get into the matter of strategy. That is very important as before we draw to a close. But is there any question or comment or disagreement? Something you didn't agree with? Now, let's now get into strategy. So how do we practically you see, I think that one of the challenges we have in the body of Christ is that there is a lot of what, but there is not enough of how. Huh? So many times we are told what we are supposed to be. You must be holy. You have to be holy. Without holiness, nobody will see God. I agree with you, preacher. But my question now is, how? How? So I don't want to say, you must be a disciple. You must make disciples. And then leave you like that without saying and showing how. So the how is what now brings us to the matter of disciple making movements. There are two terms I want you to write down. You are going to note them there in your book. You can simply underline them. You will see disciple making movements, number A. And then number B, church planting movement. So that other one is DMM. And then this one is CPM. What do you mean by these two things? Discipleship, disciple making movement is a grassroots strategy for multiplying disciples. That multiply disciples. That multiply disciples. And church planting movement is similar. But church here must be understood in the context of the New Testament. Eh? Not the way we understand church today. What is church in the New Testament? A building. I'm asking, what is church? A building. What is church? Called out. Body of believers. So how many believers are required to make up church in the New Testament? Two or three. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. That is church. 
So church planting movement is not talking about building, you know, church buildings and gathering people, this kind of church structure. It's talking about multiplying churches according to New Testament standards that multiply churches. That means that everybody here can be a church planter. Do you know that if church is two or three, where two or three are gathered together in my name, which of you here cannot gather two or three people? If you can't gather two or three people, you are not a leader. You should go home. John Maxwell said, if you think you're a leader and there's nobody following you, you are just taking a walk. (laughs) Do you understand? Two or three, you can gather two or three, five, ten, fifteen. It is the multiplication of those kind of small, 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 small churches and small, small cells that will enable us through this DMM and CPM strategy to multiply disciples. And this thing is being used all over the world now to multiply disciples. In places like China, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, uh, in the Middle East. Here in Nigeria, it's beginning to take root. What's the basis? It's a situation where every believer is a disciple, and every disciple is a disciple maker, and every disciple maker is a church planter. Every believer. Please listen. There is no verse of scripture that is not to be obeyed by every believer. You see, this thing that you have in your mind that exempts you from certain... Do you know what we do? Once we divide church into full-time and part-time, we have created two categories. So even in the mind of the people, you that you are full-time, you should go and read the Bible. You know, venerable, prof, you must find time. You have to understand Bible. After all, you are the venerable. You are the professor. You are the pastor. You, are, you must teach us Bible. By the way, while you are reading Bible, you should also get anointed that we solve all our problems because you are the man of God here. You are in charge of this church. <laughs> and when we come to you for counseling, you have to make sure you have all the answers. <laughs> Which verse are you quoting? <laughs> Which verse are you quoting? You, you yourself, don't you have anointing? In Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 20, he says, you, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. You have no need that any man should teach you, but as the same anointing which you have received abides in you and teaches you, even so you shall do. You have an anointing. Is it only the venerable or the pastor that has Holy Spirit? Who is limiting the Holy Spirit to what he can do in your life? So in DMN and CPM, there are no observers and spectators. Every believer is a disciple. Every disciple is a disciple making other disciples. And every disciple maker is planting this kind of New Testament churches. Are you following that now? That plant other churches. Now somebody will say, are you suggesting that we should break up the Anglican church? No, 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 no. You don't understand. This model will multiply the church. Imagine what is going to happen if all of you are planting churches. Huh? And when I say churches, you have these two or three that Reverend Venerable does not know about, but you are the one that is bringing them to Christ. One day he will open his eyes, church will be filled and overflowing with people that he doesn't know, that have been brought through your ministry. One of the powers of DMM-CPM is that it releases the ministry of every member in the body of Christ. 
You see, all of you that are sitting in front of me now, you have ministries. You are a minister of the gospel. But if all you do is just stay inside church and then you are waiting for the day when you will be appointed to give announcements. Hey, everything is going to come down that day. That's why they gave you announcement to make, but you are trying to preach a sermon. <laughs> the reason is because there is ministry burning inside you. There is something that God has placed inside you that wants to come out. But the only way it can come out is once in a quarter when they give you uh, uh, to come and make announcements. Or they make a mistake one day. They say, can uh, Sister Susan and so please round up our prayers for us? Wow! Inside the rounding up of the prayers, you are hearing revelations. She is saying, Lord, we thank you for this gathering. Lord, you know that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, and that secret place is something, something. <laughs> she is trying to preach inside, summarizing prayer. There is ministry. You are, I said you have something inside you. Do you understand what I'm talking about here, everybody? Or you don't believe you have anything to give to somebody else? After Christ is in your heart, all you can do is sit in church and mop and drop some money in the offering box and go home and you are going to heaven. When we have these 7.7 billion people that need the gospel, what I'm preaching is more than a sermon. It's a burden. This is part of my own role in missions to mobilize the whole church. This thing that we are doing where you have some few superstar preachers. I don't have time to show you how King Saul and his son Jonathan, they are the only people that we are armed in the whole army. I don't have time to show you. That's what we are doing inside the church. An army of two armed leaders, Saul and Jonathan, they are the only ones that have weapons. Everybody else depends on them. That method of ministry where everybody is dependent on one man of God on a pulpit has expired. God is mobilizing the whole church to reach the whole world with the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you are being invited to take your place. Okay, so this strategy is grassroots. Do you know, listen to this question. Listen carefully and answer carefully. Who plants churches in our present system? Who plants churches? Answer. Who plants churches? Church, some churches plant churches, yes. But who ordinarily who plants church? Is it not pastor that plant, plants church? It's pastor that plants church. Question, who plants mosques? Almajiris, Muslims. Do you know that you don't need a Muslim imam to start a mosque? What do they do when they come to a place? What do they do? They put some stones around. And if there are two or three Muslims, they begin to pray in that place. And then after some time, what do you notice? The thing extends. Then the walls begin to rise. Then before you know it, you have a big mosque inside the place. Now, after the mosque has been established, what do they do? They find imam and put in the place. But it was the ordinary Muslim that planted that mosque. What do you think is going to happen in Christianity? If ordinary believers start planting churches, instead of waiting for pastor or reverend, that will be exponential growth. That will be multiplication. That is what is needed if we are going to reach the world with the gospel. The devil will have a big problem. Because as he's trying to stop from this side, there is work busting out from everywhere around the world. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. And this strategy is low cost. We are going to see it. It does not require big theological degrees or training 
only willingness to follow Jesus. Amen? By obeying the word of God. You can read that passage there. So church planting movements, you know, in, in missiological circles, you now have what they call elephant churches and rabbit churches. Huh? How many of you have heard those terms, that term before? Elephant and rabbit churches. What's an elephant church? It's a big church, big mega church. Maybe some thousands of members. Um, big, like an elephant. Huh? So what are rabbit churches? They are small, 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 small churches. Now, do you know to reproduce one elephant? Anybody knows how long an elephant, elephant pregnancy lasts? It's 22 months. That's almost two years. And an elephant will deliver one calf. Max, 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 max. Really, really, really two calves. One calf. The baby of an elephant is called a calf. But rabbits. <laughs> Every three months, rabbits are multiplying. And some of the rabbits, the day that the rabbits delivered, she is ready to conceive again. I'm not talking of human beings, I'm talking of rabbits. <laughs> The way some of you are looking at me. Do you understand the matter here? And the rabbit is pouring out age 15, 20, 14. Boop, boop, boop. So in one year, from one rabbit, you can have thousands of rabbits that are producing. And then some of the other ones, as soon as they are certain ones, they start multiplying their own. It is this rabbit system, are you following the point, that will allow the church, and this is not a new invention. All you need to do is study the New Testament. The, do you know that there were no church buildings in church history until 300 years after Jesus, 300 AD? There were no church buildings. So where was the church? The church was in homes. The church was in cells. The church was meeting in all kinds of places. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So this model does not require big buildings. It does not require long theological training. It only requires believers that are willing to... And look at Jesus. Jesus with the twelve. Praise God. So look at number D now. So recruiting, teaching, modeling, and partition in small group setting focus on obedience. So the big key in understanding this DMM and CPM is that you recruit, you teach, you model, you make disciples through using small groups. Are you following the point? You can call the small group, small group, you can call it house fellowship, you can call it, um, uh, what is it called? You can call it a cell, you can call it a church, but don't forget church, not in the sense of denomination, in the sense of two or three gathered together in my name. Okay? And the goal is to have disciples there who are making disciples and then those cells are able to start other cells. And I'm going to show you how in a moment. So, um, if you now look at that number D. So, you can have small group models and it can fit into church. You can have, we are a one church. Eh? It's an elephant church. And all of them meet together all of the time. Is that alright? Or you can have another church where you have this big church that now has... Do you understand that? Cell groups, house fellowships that meet. That's another model. Or you can have a system where there is no big mother church. All you have are a network of interconnected small groups. Do you understand that? Can I say something to you? Do you know that in places like northern Nigeria 
and some of the places where we preach the gospel, the elephant church model will not work. When the Muslims want to burn down somewhere, where do they target? It's the big church. But the, with the rabbit church system, they will even see what to burn, burn down because some of the meetings take place under a tree or in somebody's office or in a garage somewhere or in a school. It's a meeting of a small group of disciples who are committed to obeying Jesus and they are willing to multiply that small group to replicate it. So what it means is that even as a small group is starting, somebody is already, the leader is already identifying other leaders that can help to multiply that movement. So let's now look a bit at the strategy and I want you to write down the word is there, pouch, pouch. So how does this work? Now, this pouch model was developed in Yanglin. It was used extensively in a place called Yanglin in China. And pouch is an acronym. It represents something, and I'm going to explain now. Pouch, the P stands for participatory. P, participatory. So when we gather in this small group, the, the plan is not for one person to be preaching like I'm preaching now. Are you following that? It is for everybody present to participate. Participatory. Then number two, the O stands for obedience. Obedience. So the goal is to obey what we are learning. We are not coming here to cram Bible. Eh? Or just to learn and learn and learn and learn and become experts in, uh, in something. We are coming to obey what we learned. The U is for unpaid, unpaid, unpaid workers. So, it's not driven by paid clergymen. It is people who are unpaid. You don't need to, excuse me, you don't need a salary to teach the word of God to four or five, seven people. What I'm saying does it make sense. You don't need a, you don't need a salary to, to have a study with 15 people. You don't need that. So, unpaid, unpaid workers. The C stands for cells. Cells. So the group remains small. It has to be cells. Small, small cells that remain small. So by the time some people target 12, Jesus had 12 disciples. Some people say somewhere between 15 and 20. By the time the group is getting to something like 15 or 20, you divide the group. You don't allow it to become big. It's deliberate. You don't want it. Huh? You may have general meetings where everybody comes together. Now, so you want it to remain as cells. Does that make sense? So 15, by the time you start getting to 15, 18, 20, you divide it. Maybe six or seven people will go and start another cell. But it means that right at the beginning, you, the leader, you are already identifying two or three people that are showing growth, they are obeying what they are learning, and that can share and teach other people. So cells, and then H there stands for homes. Homes or unpaid venues. In other words, you don't need anything that costs you money. You don't need to hire any hall. You can use homes, you can meet in offices, you can meet under the tree, you can meet in a classroom, you can meet wherever you agree to meet, in a mechanic workshop. There's one of our brothers, he used to have his own in a mechanic workshop with, you know, these boys, these mechanic boys. In the evening, when they are just closing their mechanic, mechanic studies. Imagine what is going to happen if everybody in the church... Listen, you see this thing I'm teaching you is a revolution. This is 
going to change you. It will release your ministry. What God put inside you will come out. And it will grow the church. Some pastors feel threatened. They say, but this is evil we are teaching. It's going to take away from... No, 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 no. It will convert everybody in the church into active ministers that are bringing souls. So when it is time to, time to come to worship in the church, you will come with the people that God is using you to raise. Hallelujah. So now, the tool that you use, so when you now gather, what do you do? There is something called Discovery Bible Study. Please, look at it there. It's number F at the bottom of page 2. Discovery Bible Study. Now, Discovery Bible Study is a type of study where everybody together discovers what the Word of God said by the help of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that now? It's not deductive preaching. You see, what I'm doing this morning and what I was doing yesterday is called deductive teaching. So I'm deducing, I'm getting out of scripture and teaching. It's also the Holy Spirit helping me to do that. Are you following that? But then you have something that is called inductive study. So in inductive study, you are inducing the truth. God is bringing out the truth from a group of people. So it's not just one person now. You see, it depends on the Holy Spirit speaking through our brother. He is speaking through this brother. And all of us, five or six of us around the table, eh, where we are doing this study, we are all edified by what the Holy Spirit brings out through each person. Does this make sense now? So DBS is that second type. Where we have a study and everyone participates. It's a small group, so there is no place to hide. Do you know it's possible to hide in a big church? But in a small group of three, four, five, seven people, there is nowhere to hide. <laughs> and it means that the Holy Spirit speaks and teaches. People participate in discovering truth, leading to ownership, which fosters obedience. See, listen. How many of you tell the truth? When they make some announcements in church and you get home, how did you report what they said? They said, hey, we went to church today, they said... Venerable made announcement, he said, somebody said. That's the way people talk. And once, the reason is because when people don't participate in discovering something, they don't own it. It's what you said. But when people participate in discovery, there is ownership. They cannot say they said because you contributed, you were there. It's what all of us found. Does that make sense? Now, with that, it is easier for them to obey. Obedience is easier when there is ownership. So, look at the last page now. Let's quickly run down. And error is limited. Part of the reason why error is limited is because the Holy Spirit is speaking through other people. Is that not correct? So, if somebody says, in fact, I can see revelation in this place. Somebody will say, bro, please excuse me. Uh, I can't see this revelation that this brother is talking about here. <laughs> but this is me, me. This is the way I think. And in fact, something chapter, something verse, something goes contrary to this thing that this brother is saying. So you see, many churches are now entering into error, especially many of these Pentecostal, Pentecostal churches, because they don't have Bible study. They don't have Bible study. They have uh, Sunday service, they have midweek service, they have breakthrough service, and that one man, that their champion, is one who is talking from the pulpit. There is no Bible study, there is no Sunday school. Okay, so when you now gather in this small group, practically, what do you do? Huh? You, there is opening prayer. Simple. Opening prayer. Somebody pray for us. So now imagine that there are four of us. Say, brother, please, can you pray for us? Somebody prays, asking for God's blessing and the Holy Spirit to teach us. And then, 
the person who is leading says, okay, so what are you thankful for this week? And everybody must talk. The idea is for everybody to say something. Yes? Let our brother, what are you thanking God for this week? He said, well, thank God. And in asking that question, you are coming to know the people. Some of the questions here will help you to know the people and what they are going through. Since I'm thanking God, you know, my, my, uh, my daughter was, had an operation, but now she's recovering, she's doing very well. You see, if you didn't ask that, you will not know that among your people, somebody had an operation. So how will you care for the person? So what are you thankful for this week, the person shares? What challenges have you been faced with this week? You can sing a hymn somewhere, you understand the point? The idea is to reduce religion. Do you understand my point? There is too much religion inside church. There is too much religious activity. Your idea is to concentrate on obeying what Jesus said. Not to raise more church people. Church church people. So what are you, what challenges are you facing this week? Then the person will speak. Number D. Who did you share last week's message with? How did it go? Eh? In fact, there is one even along that who did you share with is how did you obey what we learned last week? Eh? So you can add that. How did you obey? So after who you shared with, the next thing is how did you obey? Now, of course, this will not be in the very first meeting. Is that alright? Because you've not taught anything. So, but from the second meeting, you say, so who did you share what we learned? The reason is because the goal is for everybody to do and to teach. Everybody to learn, obey, and to share. Are are you following that? And you want to check it. You're not assuming. So everybody says, well, you know, I shared with my wife, okay? I shared with my friend in school. Me, I didn't share, not the person who didn't share. Then how did you obey? You go around again, everybody, including you yourself, you share how you obeyed. If you notice, because the emphasis on obedience... If you notice that consistently there is somebody in the group who is reporting that they have not obeyed, ask the person to stop coming. Say, uh, bro, please, would you consider, I noticed that in the last three, four times we met, you've not shared with anybody, you've not done, applied what we had learned, would you consider, you know, stopping coming for this study for a while? Don't force the person. If the person wants to come back, okay. But that will give a signal that we are not here to just cram something. We are here to do the word of God. Then the next thing is, ask somebody to read the passage for that day. Eh? So read the passage. If you have selected a passage, Romans chapter uh, 13 verses 1 to something, somebody reads that passage. Then the next thing is, so what did you ask someone to summarize in their own word? What do you understand by the passage? What does it mean to you? What does it say to you? What does he say about God? What does he say about our relationships? We go around. Say, well, me, you know, I read this, this, we understand. Because some of this DBS is happening with people who can't read or write. So after the passage is read, then somebody can summarize. The idea is to make sure that the person understands the passage. Are you following that now? Everybody must understand what the passage is about. Then the next thing that you find there is, uh, based on the passage that we have just read, how will you obey? How will you put it into practice? You go around again. How will you apply it? He said, well, this thing that I was talking about uh, loving your wife and love is patient. Kai, I think I'm going to be much more patient with my wife now. From what I'm learning here, I've not been patient. In fact, when my wife is talking, I'm, I'm already shouting. I don't, even allow, I don't even hear what she has to say. 
I'm going to listen more to her now. It's okay. Yes, how would you obey? He said, well, love. Hey, some of my customers, they make me very angry when they come to that, my shop. But let me see how I'm going to do with them now. <laughs> Everybody says, and then you say, even when? You can even say, when are you going to obey? When will you carry it out? Then, look, look at the next thing now. What is your prayer point? From what we have just read, what is your prayer point? How can we be praying for each other? What do you want? Say, well, please pray for me. I'm always getting angry very easily. You know, this anger. You say, love is kind. Kind. Once, once I get angry like this, I don't remember anything. That's a prayer point. You see, as this thing continues, God is changing people's lives. Now, look at the next one. Is And then, of course, if there are needs, please pray for me. I'm, I'll be traveling. Eh? I'll be traveling so, so and so time. Please pray for me. I say, my, I have exams. I have exams. A student can do this with other students. I'm not talking of a system where you set up yourself as, as papa and you have started campus fellowship, even as a student. And somebody is carrying your bag. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. You don't know the kind of things happening on campuses now. You have all kinds of boys. They are papa. Papa. They have daddy. They have people that cook for them. Sisters cook for them special. And they live in a room. Somebody carry their bag. They wash their clothes. They are papa. They are the anointed man of God. Praise the Lord. Now next one is witness. So when are we going to meet again and where? You see there are some countries where if you meet in one place repeatedly, you will be arrested. So where, when are we going to meet again? Where? It's okay. There are some places you have to keep changing venues. Sometimes you may move to another person's house. Are you following me? So the group agrees. If you are going to use the same place, of course, you can still do that. But there there be an agreement. Then, witness. Who are you bringing next week? Who are you targeting to bring when we meet again? And you can bring people who are not saved. Do you listen? This is not a place for perfect people. It's a place where people can encounter the word of God, which will now change them. Are you following the matter? And there are some of the practical keys which I mentioned there. Um, you consider starting DBS at a new person's environment family or social network if somebody who is willing to study the word of God shows interest don't invite the person to your group ask him can you gather some of your friends so that I will come and show you how this thing works you see what you are doing is you are using him as a connection to other people that are raw that you can disciple am I making sense instead of telling him to travel from uh, Transekulu to come and meet you in Okunano for Bible study. Do you understand my point? You go. Jesus said go. He didn't say you should invite them. It's easier for you to go and meet with him and his family plus two or three neighbors and begin this study. And your goal is that after a while, they themselves will be able to do the same thing to other people. Is this making sense to somebody in this place? And then, look at those practical steps as I draw to a close. Host DBS at homes or other venues of seekers. I just mentioned that. Who gather people from their own relational or work circles? Are you following me? Everybody has sheep that hear their voice. Everybody has a circle where you have influence. And the goal is to take this thing into the different, different circles. Now, look at the next one there. Split groups. I mentioned that already. Then begin early to raise leaders. And then those leaders, some of your leaders, key leaders. Imagine now after some time you have like three or four or five of these different small, small groups, some of those key leaders in those places begin to meet with them separately. Are you following that? Organize some training that impacts them more so that they can continue this. And then, 
there is something very important there. Eh? Okay, look at number D. Before I tell you E, which is very critical. D, be willing to use new disciples to do what? To start new DBS. Please listen. I just showed you that the apostles were not perfect when Jesus sent them out. It was part of their training. The Holy Spirit does on the job training. And nothing grows people with a sense, like a sense of responsibility. If somebody is hungry for God and you put responsibility on the person, I'm not talking of giving responsibility so you can retain somebody who has money in your church. I'm talking of somebody who is hungry for God and you give the person responsibility. You are going to see the person grow. There have been stories of new converts. Look at the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman. How, how old was she in the Lord before she brought the entire Samaritan village to Christ? I'm asking the question, how old was she? Seconds or minutes. And that's another key. There is something called the man of peace in this movement. Jesus said, when you enter into a town or a city, say, look for that man of peace. Who is a man of peace? He's somebody who is disposed to what you are saying. Other people are hostile, but the person is open. The person is open to hear you, is open to host a study like this. The person says, well, okay, this Bible study, me, I like God, though, but me, I don't know how all these things happen. Well, anyway, sure, if somebody wants to come, they can come. That is different from saying, no, no, get out. All of you, this morning, get okay, away, don't, don't come here. You see, so you should be looking out for people like that who are sensitive to the things of God. They are interested. They are willing to look at Lydia. Remember Lydia? As soon as they met Lydia, Lydia said, if you people, you judge me faithful, come to my house. And Paul moved to Lydia's house with the disciples. And staying there impacted that woman. And it in turn, of course, that was in the city of Philippi. The final thing I will say is, bathe all of this thing in prayer. Prayer, prayer. Write that as number E. Capital E. Prayer. DMM and CPM, they are born out of prayer. You are asking God for souls. You are praying for the city. You are praying for genuine disciples. You are asking God to transform the people as they encounter the word of God. You are, you are praying. Because this thing is born of the Spirit and it is driven by the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. Alright? So, in summary, we have established that as leaders, God wants us to be people that connect with divine agenda. Have you followed up to that point? God wants us to be people that connect with what is important to him. And the most important thing to our father is gathering the harvest for which Jesus died. That harvest is represented by billions uh, unreached people groups, 4.6 billion in Asia. Do you know that Nigeria has unreached people groups? Uh, even around us here, even the ones that are religious, are they disciples of Christ? So, Jesus now commands us to engage this harvest by making disciples. How do we, who are disciples? We establish that they are people that are pupils, they are apprentices, they are servants who want to learn from the master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't raise disciples for yourself. Are you following that? Make sure that everybody is a disciple of Christ, not a disciple of you, simply because you are their leader. Are you following what I'm sharing here now? And discipleship is not a means of controlling people. It's a means of help. Because some people are using discipleship to manipulate people. That is evil. It's, it's happening in Nigeria here. It's happening. Some people are using discipleship. Things, you see, in this discipleship, the thing got so bad in some places, 
that people have to take permission to come and do what they can decide to do by themselves as normal human beings. Then the disciple says, no, you can't take any step. You must wait. And the man has kept you waiting for the past three, four, five years. He's telling you to wait. Eh? I'm sitting on your life. You are not sitting on anybody's life. Who told you? How dare you say that? How dare you? You are sitting on somebody's life. He said, until I release you. Who are you releasing? The person that Jesus set free? So you see, there are some of this language in what people call discipleship now that you don't find in the Bible. Don't let anybody control you and control your family. Some disciples, so-called, are deciding who will marry who. This is evil. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. People never become your disciples. They are disciples of Jesus Christ. Are you following that? You yourself, you are a fellow disciple pointing other people to the master, not to yourself. Blessed be God forevermore. And we have seen that there is a cost to this discipleship. And we have also seen that there is a strategy that we can use. And that strategy is, how many of you believe you can do what I have described inside this place? You can do this. Why not? Why not? And you don't know what will happen if you start doing this thing. Just small, small thing like that. Bring two or three people. Start doing, following the steps. You have the way, the thing. And then all you now need is an outline. And that's why before I leave, I'm going to provide some resources for you. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray now. Just, I want you to pray and ask the Lord to help you. You are going to connect with divine priorities. You are going to live for divine agenda. Please pray. Please pray. Would you like to respond to God? Say, Father, use me for what is important to your heart. Father, use me to impact your harvest. Please pray. Sister, open your mouth. Pray. Say, Lord, I am available. I look like five loaves and two fishes. But if you can use anything, you can use me. I'm available to you. Just pray like that. Ask him, ask him to use you. Ask him to help you. Ask for grace. Somebody say, well, me, I don't know how to talk. That's what Moses said. But God said, who made man's mouth? I will help you. Would you like to accept responsibility? To own the harvest? Would you like to say, Jesus, use me? This harvest that is important to you, Lord, whatever I can do to gather it. Do you imagine, do you, imagine you as a prof? If you invite some students to your place and you start this thing, who told you they will not come there? They will be transformed. Once a week, you just sit down somewhere and, and do this thing. And then you cannot invite them to church. You will see people transform. Oh, Father, we thank you. Now, how many of you are going to obey? How many of you are going to obey? Put your hand up. I want to pray for you. We are going to obey what we have studied. If you have questions, they will be answered. Yes, Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for these servants of God. Lord, these brothers and sisters, Lord, who are willing to do your will, to engage your harvest. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I ask that grace will rest upon their lives. I ask that the power of your spirit will rest upon them. 
However, Father, you will use them to start something, Lord, that will impact many other lives. In the name of Jesus Christ. I ask that, Father, you will use them to disciple people, that we disciple other people. Lord, until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, as the waters cover the sea. Father, I pray for wisdom for them. And I pray that, Father, as they serve you, as they pour into other people, they themselves will never run dry. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Receive grace to multiply disciples. Receive grace to multiply disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we have prayed. And all of God's people said, Amen. Okay, praise the Lord. Alright, now we'll just take a few minutes and get... Yes, and take any questions that we might have. Or any concerns you might have, please feel free to raise them now um, so that we can discuss them. Yes, please. And questions are welcome. Uh, Praise the Lord. Yes, yes. Praise the Lord. My honest contribution, when you are teaching us, sir, you said if you come to that small group of people and we, somebody said, yes, made opening prayer and the other person contributes and called, he does any person have formed the habit or not saying anything from time to time, we should tell that person to go home. But by the grace of God, I'm a lecturer in a suit. We don't handle students anyhow. There are some people that are introverts. There are people that are extroverts. Some like to talk, while some we keep quiet when the lecture is going on. So what do you do? You have to make sure that you handle those people that are recalled inside. You yeah. have to pull the talents. You have to bring them out. Inside them. Instead of telling them to go home or leave the class. Thank you. You Thank don't you. handle people anyhow, sir. So Thank we start to harness the talents inside every person. Whether that person is saying something or not. Without that person, we grow up and meet with other person. These people are known as special students. Thank you, sir. I agree with you absolutely. That's why you don't do it the first time. You understand? And your goal as a leader is to bring out of... That's why you give everybody opportunity. He said, brother, let's hear what you have to say. No, no, there is no contribution that is useless. Please share. Please share. You make everybody feel welcome. Are you following that? Then everybody can share. And then some people that might need special attention outside of the group. That's your job as the leader. You understand the point? You can now talk with the person and say, bro, are there some things going on? Please share with me. Do you understand? And that's a good way to address those kind of things. But you see, after a while, you will notice people that are not interested in doing what you are saying. Are you following my point? And some of those people, you need to ask them to stop. Don't chase them away if they come back, but the whole group realizes that we are not just here for empty talk. You need to do, we have to do what we are learning. At least make an effort. And then if you have a problem where you are, where you are carrying that out, are you getting my point now? Then it can be raised. That's why you have that question, what challenge did you face? Because sometimes where you are obeying, there are challenges arising. Then that can be addressed. But you see, the point is obedience. Listen, Jesus said, teaching them to obey. So we ourselves, we are committed to obeying. We are not just committed to coming to church and listening to someone. But notice that the regular church has no way of checking who obeys. There is no system. Once the message is preached from church, how do we check whether people obeyed? There's nothing. Because you can't do that with a big group. But with a small group, you can go around and, and check that. Okay? Um, our brother here. Yes. Okay. In a situation where this is going to happen in the workplace. Yes, sir. At the designated uh, period 
for a meeting. Work is disrupted. And perhaps one or two people in the fellowship may have key function in the office, like a secretary. And people to be attended to will wait for the period of that meeting or the uh, staff concerned may move out to attend to uh, business of the day in the office. Yes. How do you handle this kind of situation in the office hours? Okay, now, first of all, this is not a cop-out. It's not an excuse for you to disrupt your work where you are doing. The Bible says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you give to God what belongs to God. If you are working, I am against believers using their work hours to do what they call spiritual... I don't know whether it happens in Enugu here, but in Abuja and some other places, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, some people are inside church, and they are supposed to be at work. I don't believe that. So please, if it is the break period, one of the ways to do it is to use the break period at work. If that period is one hour, then this can be done in one hour. And you see, it's better to read one verse and people obey one verse than to cover one chapter and then nobody obeyed. Are you following that? So please, I want to discourage um, a situation where it is happening during work and it's disrupting work and then people have to start going up and down and then you will have a problem with um, authorities and that is not that is not good. So let's use maybe the break period or other times that early in the morning, you understand, um, that is convenient for whatever group. So you see, a lot of this will vary depending on who you are dealing with. Even the venue, sir, and where you are meeting. It can be under a tree. Five people gather under a tree and they do this one hour, one hour, 15 minutes, one and a half hours. It should not be too long. Once it starts dragging too long, are you following that? Then, of course, you are going to lose out uh, some people. Yes, our brother here. Praise the Lord. Yes, sir. How do we handle heresy? How do we handle heresy? How do you mean? Like, you know, when somebody is taught something, that person may not really pass down what he got or what he learned. Or maybe he was not really informed. So how do we handle heresy that? The, 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 the mechanism for handling heresy is built into, into the discipleship, by, uh, the discovery Bible study system. You see, like I mentioned earlier, if somebody says something that is contrary to the word of God, there are other people there who say, and don't forget that the Holy Spirit, how many of you, you have been in Bible studies where the Holy Spirit is speaking through people? How many of you have experienced that? It's even in your, do you know this discovery Bible study thing that we did? You can use it for your morning devotions. You will be shocked. Because this morning devotion where you are doing, you are the only one that is talking. When you finish, the children will say, Daddy said. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? Say, Daddy said. That's what Daddy and Mommy, that's what they said. You didn't allow them to talk. It's what you said. <laughs> but what do you think is, you can use this in your, in your, in your, in your, what is it called? In your family devotions. Because, of course, the first people to disciple is your own household. You know? So, if this is done properly with prayer, it controls heresy. And that is also why leadership is available. You that is more matured, if people are trying to bring up something contrary, you teach them. And if people are being taught and discipled properly, 
what has been committed to them is what they themselves will transmit. That's why I said, the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, what do you do? He said, commit it to faithful people who will also be able to do what? Commit it to other people. So once that chain continues, huh, you will notice that there is a continuation of, of faithfulness, a sustenance. Like I'm, I'm saying to you, there were no church buildings until AD 300. So how was the gospel preserved? Thank you for the question. Yes, sir. In uh, page 3, question uh, 4D, you said, be willing to use new disciples to start new... Yes, sir. Be willing to use new disciples to start uh, new DBS. I, I see a danger in this, which we are already experiencing, in the way some uh, ministries go about uh, uh, setting up uh, churches. Um, if you look at uh, the Matthew 9 to 10, through where we picked um, part of our reading, in, before the chapter 10 that he sent them, he took time to teach them, first of all, before sending them out. So I, I want us to, you know, um, take some caution before making people uh, leaders of uh, DBS. Or before setting them out to go and disciple others, we need to exercise some caution. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But then the question is, how long is enough? You see, there is this endless discipleship that is focused on inward. All the time, this Mr. Flesh, I have not died now. Oh God, help my life. God, I need... And the man has been doing this for the past how many years? And he has not shared anything with anybody. I don't know if you are following the matter. So I agree with you very much, sir. Jesus taught them. But notice that, and you see, God does in-service training. Do you understand in-service training? It's a very important principle in public service. As you are serving, they are training you. You are, going, you are becoming a better person. But do you know that some of the exposures are part of your training? They are part of your training. They help you. So, yes, sir. Um, I agree with you, sir. But then let's make sure that we engage people. Give them opportunity. Are you following that? To share under supervision. You see, when they finished, the Bible says they came back to Jesus. Do you remember that? And they reported to him all that they had done, all that they had taught, and then he corrected them. Then remember when they were quarreling among themselves, he said, No, don't do that. The least, the greatest among you should be your servant. He kept on teaching them, but he also kept on. I mean, look, if you were Jesus, would you send somebody who denied you some days ago to go and preach your name? What was the distance from when Peter denied Jesus from the day of, to the day of Pentecost? It was about 50 days. It's less than two months from when Peter denied Christ to the day of Pentecost. Would you trust such a person with such a mission? How are you sure he will continue? That is where we rely on the help of the Holy Spirit. See, this thing is God at work. We are his instrument. And we have to, and by the way, there is a scripture. <laughs> there is a scripture in the book of Proverbs. You know what he says? He said, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. Do, do you understand that scripture? He said, look, he said, if you don't have cow here, the place will be very clean. But if you have plenty cows, what will be there? There will be plenty poo-poo, is that not correct? <laughs> so you have to decide, do I want cow and I have to keep cleaning poo-poo? Or do I not, will I prepare a situation where there is no cow and my place is sparkling clean? 
Which one do you prefer, sir? <laughs> I want cow. The people will find a way to clear them out. That's <laughs> my point. <laughs> so that's a very important principle. Anywhere the work of God is growing, there will be issues to address. Look at the Acts of the Apostles. You have Ananias and Sapphira. You have the grumbling of people. Eh, we are being neglected. All those things came up. But God gave the apostles wisdom. So you as the leader, God will also give you the wisdom to address these different, different things that might come up. And then you can always ask for counsel. Like in our setting here, if there are issues, you can talk with the venerable or whoever is responsible for, for, for that aspect of church life. Okay, yes? Our brother here, and then we'll take our sister. If you have a, a situation where you normally meet for exchange of academic ideas, Okay. You are in complete control of that meeting. How do you bring in, you know, most of the people who come are mostly Catholics. Yeah. It's, you know, clearly, um, purely voluntary. Yeah, if they want to come, they come. Um, mostly Catholics, most are not born again. Most are not born again, mostly yeah. Catholics. How do you bring in this kind of... Um, Something like this. Yes. Okay. Here is one way you can do it. This is what John Maxwell, I mentioned John Maxwell earlier. His books have been very helpful. I'm sure many of us we have read of him. What John Maxwell does sometimes, some of his seminars, he does them for corporations, not, not, not in Christian, but some of them are Shintoist or something else, or Buddhist. Or... Then what he does is at the end, the last day, he says, well, uh, tomorrow in the morning, I know the seminars have ended, but tomorrow morning I have a special session. If you want to know the secret of my success, um, you know, where I can share more about my life, and stuff, you are free to come. And usually, three quarter of the people, who doesn't want to know the secret of his success? They show up. Now, when they show up there, it's an opportunity to preach. And look, the man God is using is leading thousands of people to Christ. These are executives that never would have heard the gospel. I don't know if you are following. So he starts preaching. He tells them about Jesus. Then when he finishes, he makes an altar call, and they give their lives to Christ. Now, you can't accuse him of using official time. Are you following that? For, for that. He didn't do that. And you are the one that came. It was willing. It was free will. <laughs> so one thing you can do is, you can say to them, um, well guys, you know, I like to study the Bible, and uh, if there are some of you that want to join me uh, when we finish, just for an hour, please, uh, you're, you're welcome to stay back. If you have influence among them, you see, this is why it's important that Christians excel in what you do. You live a life of light. Some of them are already trying to be like you. When you make that kind of statement, maybe it's two or three that will stay. You begin with them. But don't try to force it into the main agenda. You will just generate opposition. Okay, praise the Lord. Where is the sister here? Yes, ma'am. I hope that helps. Now, some of these things you can discuss further with me. God is raising a movement together his end time harvest. And it's a movement where every believer has a place. Yes, our sister. Um... I want to find out how do you handle distractions? Like, if, uh, like a woman now, I want to do this in my neighborhood. Yes. You find that you keep, you invite people and today this group will come, another day they are distracted and they are unable to come. How do you gather the group that will be able to build up this self? I, I can imagine what you are describing, but you see, this thing is, this thing is, is, is flexible. Do you understand my point? You're more interested in pouring in the truth that changes people's lives than in the form that it takes. Am I making sense? Uh-huh. So be flexible with your people. And then concentrate on those who are available. 
add prayer. Let me tell you this story and then I will stop. We were praying one day in our ministry and we just suddenly heard you know a word of knowledge. Just imagine that you are praying and then a word of wisdom, not word of knowledge, word of wisdom. Then prayer, prayer. You know, the picture is like you are cooking something. And you say, Tiye bere, tiye bere, tiye bere. Add prayer, add prayer, add prayer, add prayer. I have found that if we pray, and we pray with a desperate heart, for something that is already important to God, we are going to see God do great things. Are you following? He will give us the wisdom to address complicated issues. We will be able to handle matters. God will resolve them. And then the other thing that will happen is, do you know that section where you say, do you have any prayer point you want us to pray, either from what we learned today or from some challenge issue that you are facing? Do you know that God, the people will start experiencing answers to prayers? They will start seeing miracles. They will start confirming. People will start getting healed. They will see their prayers answered. Do you, who said the power of God only manifests in church congregation? This anointing that only manifests in church, is, are you sure it's the Holy Spirit of the Bible? Because the shadow of Peter was healing the sick. Where? On the street, not in church. So as people experience God's power and see God do great things, you are going to find that their faith starts getting established in Christ. And you see them getting transformed. Let's pray. Just put up your hands as we pray. Eternal Father, thank you for these servants of God who have stayed through this training this, this, this morning afternoon. Lord, I want to ask that grace will rest upon them. I want to ask that, Father, they will see you do great things through their lives to draw people, to impact lives in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for people of peace. I pray for opportunities to implement this word. I pray for fruit that will abide, fruit that will abound. And I pray that in all of this, in all of this, you will be glorified. Through you and through your word, your kingdom will come in the lives of these people and in the lives of many in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, gracious Father. In Jesus' name we have prayed and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.